step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. everybody. Welcome to the show. Ah! Welcome to the show, everybody. Trying to fix my chair as I talk to you, because I'm a fucking mess. I am an absolute fucking mess doing this show. Um... Boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. Good googly moogly. I believe we had a wee bit of an election last night. And I believe in that election, uh, Democrats got absolutely draxed. Just completely obliterated. Um, You'll never guess who's being blamed, son. You'll never guess who's being blamed. Flash, you will obviously guess who's being blamed. It's Um, the most predictable thing on the planet. But Terry McAuliffe ran in Virginia. He's a Democrat. He's a corporatist's wet dream. He ran against Glenn Youngkin, a Republican, and um, he got smizz-ash dog. So we're going to talk about that. Um, 
I got uh, uh, the hits are already rolling in, man. The hits are already rolling in. MSNBC talking about this race. Uh, who they blame, what they blame, is honestly beyond parody. Um, we have later on. I will talk about how progressives folded like a cheap lawn chair. I'm going to talk about this new um, this new negotiated settlement for the Build Back Better deal. I mean, I got so many substantive stories today. I got, there's a story on corruption that is just, it's, it's, somehow it's getting worse and worse, man. I didn't know it could get worse in the United States, but it's getting worse and worse. So sit right there. Oh, and I got a millionaire's douchebag club, millionaire douchebags club, like 100 plus millionaire super rich club that we'll talk about as well. So um, you're not going to want to miss any of this. Today's show is a good one. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So we had a wee bit of an election yesterday, ladies and gentlemen, um, and probably the biggest and most consequential election of the night was the Virginia governor's race. You had Terry McAuliffe, who is a corporate Democrat. He was once governor of Virginia already. Uh, you can't run for consecutive terms in New Jersey, so he was governor um, before Northam, now Northam, a Democrat, is in office. And then McAuliffe was running again to be governor. And he was running against Glenn Youngkin, who's a businessman and um, an interesting kind of Republican. Now, we'll talk about this as we go along here. But the bottom line is uh, Virginia is a D plus 10 state. Biden won that state by 10 points. It's generally viewed as a safe Democratic state at this point. And what was the result? The Republicans draxed them sclounced. Glenn Youngkin ended up winning, and when all said and done, it's going to be by a fairly comfortable margin, especially given the fact, again, that it's a D plus 10 state. So if he ends up winning by three points, let's say, that's a crushing victory. That's a crushing victory because a Republican shouldn't be able to get anywhere near the governorship in a state like Virginia. So that begs the question, well, what did Glenn Youngkin do right as a Republican running? And what did Terry McAuliffe do wrong as a Democrat? Now, boy, oh boy, the discourse around this has been the most frustrating thing I've seen in politics in a while. So we're going to get to a totally separate segment on this. But of course, the chorus is out there already blaming the left for Terry McAuliffe's loss. Um, And and some other issues, which again, I'll bite my tongue. We'll get to separate segments on this stuff. Uh, But also, in the case of Glenn Youngkin, how did he walk the fine line and split the difference and become a palatable Republican Uh, in the era of Trump, where obviously Trump lost the last presidential election. So I have the answer to all of those questions. First and foremost, let's start with Terry McAuliffe's closing ad, because this highlights in a very clear way why Terry McAuliffe was a completely lackluster candidate. starts when we give room for hate to grow. 
You also had very fine people on both sides. And for some, they embrace it. I was honored to receive President Trump's endorsement. But leadership requires taking a stand. I have a message to all the white supremacists and the Nazis who came into Charlottesville today. Go home. You are not wanted in this great commonwealth. And not giving oxygen to the lies. The single biggest issue, the most important issue, is talking about the election fraud. The list audit, the voting machine. This election is about lifting up all Virginians and protecting our democracy. What we stand for and what kind of commonwealth our kids will inherit. Let's choose a better way. I'm Terry McCullough, candidate for governor, and I sponsor this ad. So... Terry McAuliffe ran on, hey, you guys, Donald Trump is bad. I don't know if you know this, Donald Trump is really, really bad. Donald Trump is no longer the president of the United States. This actually goes to show you in a very clear way the hollowness of the corporate Democrat. The strategy that Biden won on is, hey, you guys, Trump is really, really, really bad. You already had four years of him, so you know what to do. Let's go back to normal. Now, usually a go back to normal message doesn't win because normal ain't so great for the overwhelming majority of Americans. But it was a rare instance where it worked for Biden, particularly because the country was a complete mess. Trump was just too crazy. COVID was completely rampant. Um... Everybody did feel like we sort of went off the rails. But this isn't any sort of long-term strategy for Democrats to win. What are you going to do? Talk about Trump in like 2048? Is that what you're going to do? Donald Trump is no longer in office. Why are you talking about Trump? And, you know, the, the gist of McAuliffe's approach is the old school Tom Perez, head of the DNC, Uh, joke that we always made, which is, I'm for good things and I'm against bad things. And I think that uh, people are are good people and we should treat people with dignity and respect. And I'm going to say a bunch of good words like tolerance and diversity. And uh, I like tolerance and diversity. Do you like tolerance and diversity? I'll say a bunch of flowery words. And if I say a bunch of flowery words, will you Will you shut your mind off and just vote for me and say Republican bad and Trump bad? So Glenn Youngkin bad? And, I mean, the results speak for themselves, but it's utterly hollow. There's no there there in that message. You're not telling people what you're going to do, what you want to do, your vision for the country. You don't even have a main issue or two that you're hammering away on where you could say, I'm the good guy on this, and my opponent is, is pushing for a position that is way out of lockstep with the needs of the people. So, I mean, Terry McAuliffe's loss, is, I mean, there's a number of factors that go into it. He has the personality of a dead goat. I mean, that guy has a negative charisma, so that alone hurts a political candidate massively. But outside of that, you got this Trump is bad message, which is like, okay, and then what? Uh, And then the other thing is, even if you're following this thing in a very detached way, the negotiations that are currently going on in Washington, D.C., over this Build Back Better bill. They're comical. They're comical. So Democrats take 
you know, a bunch of ideas that pull phenomenally popular. And then over time, they strip out provision after provision after provision after provision. And then we're left with, you know, a, a shell of a decent bill with loopholes that you can drive a Mack truck through. And what do you expect, voters to reward you for this? When you say, hey, we're dropping Medicare expansion, which polls at 80%. We're dropping lowering drug prices, which polls at 80%. We're dropping paid family leave, which Americans desperately want. You expect when you're dropping all those things that you're going to get rewarded for that? At this point, Democrats at the national level and at the state level have a stench on them. Why? Well, we're still dealing with COVID, and they're not delivering on anything. The last time they delivered was a stimulus check a long time ago, and that stimulus check was a lot less than what they said they would even deliver. They said, we're going to give you $2,000 checks, and then they weaseled their way all the way down to 1400 and said, oh, but Trump already gave you 600 so we're going to add the 1400 to the 600 That's what we're going to do. You're not going to get away with this sleazy used car salesman bullshit. No disrespect to used car salesman. There was a time where I was a car salesman, so definitely no disrespect to them. But it's just absolutely devastating and pathetic. Now, on the flip side, what Glenn Youngkin did is fascinating. So Glenn Youngkin had to thread the needle. And the needle was, how do I not piss off Trump's voters who still make up the majority of the base of the party? How do I not piss off Trump voters while chipping away at suburbanites who had flipped to Joe Biden in the previous election? That is no easy task, but Glenn Youngkin did it. So how did he do it? Well, thing number one is he threaded the needle in an artful way on Trump. So, you know, Trump endorsed him. Glenn Youngkin had used some rhetoric that sort of fed into the big lie that Trump won the election, but he largely steered steered clear of it. He didn't want Trump to come and campaign for him in Virginia. Um, He didn't even mention the issue of immigration, even with all the issues going on at the southern border right now. What he did with his campaign is focus like a laser on culture war issues. He went all in on culture war issues, namely education policy and critical race theory. And the idea that he was pitching was, well, Democrats, uh, you know, want this critical race theory garbage in the classroom. They don't want to teach your kid the idea of colorblindness, that we shouldn't see color and we should accept people for who they are. They want to teach like uh, rank sectarianism. They want to divide people along racial lines. They want to, you know, make the argument that whitey is evil and that's what should be taught in the, in the classroom. Now, Is is this a true narrative? Look, at best, there's only a tiny grain of truth in that. At worst, it's just not true, and they're hyping up a boogeyman. But if you hammer away and hammer away and hammer away, you can convince people of it. But the worst part is, what did Terry McAuliffe do? Followed Glenn Youngkin right down the rabbit hole. So Glenn Youngkin was effectively like, I want to make this a culture war battle. That's what I want to do. And Terry McAuliffe said, yes, sir. Where do I sign up for that? You can make whatever incendiary claim about Democrats that you want to make. And 
embedded in my response to you will be, this is a legitimate battle on a legitimate issue that should define an election. So when all you do as a Democrat is play defense on the culture war and go down that culture war rabbit hole, and your only message outside of that is, seriously, you guys, Donald Trump is really, really, really bad. What do you expect to happen? What do you expect to happen? So the left is screwed on two fronts. Because if you listen to the technocratic D.C. careerist insiders that staff a lot of these Democratic campaigns, they will hammer in your head that you cannot go left on economics. That's unpopular, even though it's phenomenally popular. They'll tell you it's unpopular. Don't go there. Centrism is cool. Centrism is a winner. So then you have this milquetoast, non-existent economic message. And then the, the argument from many lefties is, no, actually, you should fight the culture war head on. You should lean into the culture war head on. And so, you know, if you listen to the left, you have these overly woke young people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And so you look unappealing on two fronts. You look unappealing in the sense that you'll go down whatever culture war rabbit hole the right wants you to go down, and you'll lose on that front. And if you talk about economics, which he didn't, but if you do talk about economics, he would have made an affirmative case for milquetoast, watered-down corporate centrism, which is also unpopular. So what do you expect to happen in a situation like this? It's a D-plus-10 state, and Terry McAuliffe blew it. So Glenn Youngkin, all he had to do was change the conversation, change the debate, don't say anything about economics either, because he's probably smart enough to know that as a businessman and a right-winger, his positions are not popular on economics. So just change the conversation completely to culture war tripe, go all in on that, define your opponent, and also just walk that fine line on Trump. And Glenn Youngkin also had the aesthetic of more of an old-school Republican more of just a a regular, schmegular, businessman, Republican. And that was palatable, particularly to the suburbanites in this era. You know, he did just enough um, towing of the Trump line to get the base to turn out, and he looked just normal enough to get the suburbanites to flip back to him. So the solution here is, for Republicans, the lesson for Republicans is you have to walk that fine line on Donald Trump. Don't go too crazy and Trumpy, but also don't put your middle finger up to the base like Liz Cheney does. And then on top of that, just go all in on culture war issues and change the conversation to an area where you define your opponent and you can hammer away. That's the lesson for Republicans. And it worked for Glenn Youngkin. The lesson, there are multiple lessons for Democrats, but you have to shut the fuck up about the culture war Shut up about the culture war. Um, Change the nature of the debate and the conversation back to populist economics, where the left-wing position is phenomenally popular. Now, again, Terry McAuliffe isn't for populist economics, so he wouldn't run on that. But that would have helped. He probably would have won if he just hammered away on economic stuff. I'm going to raise the minimum wage. He's not. Something like that. Focus on economics and um, just stop nominating candidates that have the charisma of a dead goat.
So those are the lessons of this election. Those are the lessons. Republicans need to walk the fine line on Trump and then change the conversation to culture war issues because they can't win on economics. And Democrats need to actually break away from new Democrat corporatism. Break away from this old model that is outdated. Actually talk about popular economic policies. Don't go down the culture war rabbit hole. This is the reality. Look, I said it once, I'll say it again. I said it more than once. I said it a zillion times. In 1938, Democrats had 80% of the House of Representatives and 80% of the Senate. FDR, who was elected in the early 1930s, uh, he got elected president four times. This is before we had term limits. What's the lesson from that? The lesson from that is very simple. Go all in on economic populism. Kick out the big money. Go all in on economic populism. Deliver materially for the American people. And Democrats will crush. I'm sure if you talk to any, you know, corporate idiot pundit today, they'll tell you it's impossible for this country to ever have 80% Dems in the House and 80% Dems in the Senate in today's day and age. It's impossible for a president to win like over 400 electoral votes. Today, we're too partisan. Wrong. We just haven't had a president who represents the material interests of the American people, arguably since FDR and maybe a, a splash of JFK exceeded the war on poverty, the great society. Actually deliver for people, and they'll deliver for you. And so Terry McAuliffe was a terrible candidate, but beyond that, even at the national level now, Democrats have a stench on them not handling COVID, not doing anything right on economics, not delivering for the people. If anything, all the news that ever comes out is, we're stripping out this popular provision and this popular provision and this popular provision, and we can't do shit. And look, it's President Cinema and VP Manchin, and they're calling all the shots. That's where we're at. But again, having said all this, hold your horses. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. That train is right on time. You know exactly who they're blaming for this loss, and it's the left. So more on that in a little bit. All right, here we go. Here comes that segment. Ah! Here comes this segment, baby. So Terry McAuliffe is a corporate Democrat. He's really a conservative Democrat. And um, he lost to Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin in a D plus 10 state. Biden won Virginia by 10 points. Should have been a layup election for Democrats in Virginia for the governor's office. And um, he got trounced. McAuliffe got trounced. So, of course, um, when a conservative Democrat loses, whose fault is it? The left. Of course, it's always the fault of the left. That's the way it works in Washington, D.C. That's the way it works. Um, so now there's a million examples of this happening after the loss. But I just want to show you, they were already starting to build this narrative before we got the results. Before we got the results in Virginia. So in other words, 
Democrats knew the polling for McAuliffe was bad and that in the final two weeks, it actually flipped and it looked like uh, Glenn Youngkin had the lead. So they were already laying the groundwork. Here's Democratic Senator, corporatist extraordinaire Mark Warner, making the case that it's the left's fault before any results came in. Given the president a big win, I gotta tell you, in Virginia, where we've got a gubernatorial race tomorrow, that would have really helped uh, Terry McCullough a lot if we'd been able to uh, notch that win. So, that is a corporatist, in no uncertain terms, blaming the left. Because, hey, the left refused to detach the reconciliation bill from the traditional infrastructure bill. And because that's the case, it is therefore the left's fault. Because in his mind, he thinks, what, if the traditional infrastructure bill got passed? And by the way, none of the material benefits of that would have been out the door by the time this election happened. But you think that if that traditional infrastructure bill passed, which is a half measure at best, and I'm being kind by calling it a half measure, it is about a trillion dollars when we need nearly five trillion just to update our infrastructure up to modern standards. So it's honestly, it's next to nothing on the infrastructure front. And none of the benefits would have gone out the door before the election. But his point is, oh, if we had passed that, then, you know, Terry McAuliffe would probably be winning because President Biden would have notched a W. Okay, but it gets worse. So Axios is out with... um, with a headline today, voters punish Democrats amid left drift. Voters punish Democrats amid left drift. What left drift? I don't see a left drift. Do you see a left drift? Uh, let's see. Mansion and Cinema are dominating the news, and they've been stripping out almost every popular provision from this Build Back Better bill. Almost every single one. COVID is still you know, ripping its way through the country. And the last time Democrats materially delivered was the $1,400 stimulus check a long time ago. Now, by the way, when those stimulus checks were delivered, Biden's approval rating was the highest it has ever been. Because it's almost like when you materially deliver for people, they reward you in the polls and they support you. But Democrats haven't materially delivered. And all that's in the news is, hey, we're dropping paid family leave. Hey, we're dropping uh, a Medicare expansion. Hey, we're dropping free community college. Hey, we're dropping all of these phenomenally popular programs. So on what planet is it leftward drift? Now, I will be maybe overly kind and say this. There is one narrow way in which you could say the left, quote unquote, uh, could be at least partially responsible for the loss here. Unfortunately, there are many like ultra woke leftists who don't know what the fuck they're talking about when it comes to elections. And, you know, they sincerely think that the American people are on board with all of their positions on the culture war. And McAuliffe definitely went down that culture war rabbit hole. And when Glenn Youngkin made this race about, about critical race theory, McAuliffe was right there to be like, I agree, let's fight about critical race theory. Let's go right down that culture war rabbit hole. And then he got destroyed in that culture war rabbit hole. He was on the losing side of that culture war battle. 
Now, on the one hand, it's because he doesn't know how to argue it. But on the other hand, it's also because, why are you having that argument? Reframe the discussion on economics. Obviously, you should do that. But, you know, Democratic positions on economics are way more popular. And you're going to let him define the debate by going all in on some culture war shit. And you're like, yeah, let's fight it out over the culture war. And then, oh, on top of that, I have one other message. Trump is bad. Wow. Well, he's not even in office. So why the fuck are we talking about this? So in that very narrow sense, because, yes, there are many lefties who would say, yeah, follow them down the culture war rabbit hole. No, do not follow them down the culture war rabbit hole. Drop the culture war. Swap that shit aside. Oh, critical race theory? Yeah, he's wrong about critical race theory. Anyway, I'm going to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I'm going to do that. He's not. I'm fighting for working people. He's not. That's what you do. So you could say the left is maybe in part responsible for uh, making this idea widespread that we should dive into culture war battles. But in reality, there were no lefties on uh, McAuliffe's staff, and McAuliffe's not a lefty. He decided on his own volition as a centrist to go all in on culture war bullshit. So even that point, there's only a grain of truth in that. Now, I want to tell you, because again, they're going to try to gaslight this shit out of you. Here's the reality. In the Build Back Better plan, they're blaming the left. The left were the most fervent supporters of these policies that I'm about to list for you. Long-term investments, long-term care investments. So I believe that's elder care. Plus 67 points. The, the approval for that is 79%. Modernizing K-12 school buildings, 73% popular. Electricity grid modernization, 74% popular. Medicare drug price negotiations, 73% popular. Lowering the Medicare age, 59% popular. Universal pre-K, 59%. Tuition pre community college, 58%. Um, extending the child tax benefit, that's plus nine for popularity. Guys, the people who are fighting for these policies that are insanely popular, they're the solution. They're not the problem. The problem is you're stripping these policies out. The problem is the conservative Democrats, the corporate Democrats, the corrupt Democrats. I got more for you. What's the left fighting for? Let's see. Increasing capital gains taxes on the wealthy. That polls at 72%. Limiting deductions for wealthy business owners, 71%. Raising income taxes on the wealthiest, 2%, 71%. Increasing taxes on large corporations. 65%. The answer is to go left on economics, to go all in on economic populism. That's the answer. The media is telling you, the chatter right now in Washington, D.C. is, no, it's the left's fault that we lost. Joe Biden is president. He's a corporatist. He leans more in a conservative Democrat direction. McAuliffe is a corporatist. He's a conservative Democrat. The guy who's the head of the Democratic Party in the country and the guy who lost this election are corporate Democrats. They're conservative Democrats. And somehow it's the left's fault? It's the left's fault. They already have their answer before the conversation starts. Because corporate media is complicit in this farce, in this game. By the way, it's not just Axios. It's not just that clip I showed you of Warner beforehand. There was a political reporter who tweeted yesterday, chatter in D.C. is that Biden has drifted too far left. 
Biden has drifted too far left. He hasn't done Dickie McGee's act since those, that last round of stimulus checks. He's drifted too far left. They're stripping out all of the left provisions that are super popular, but he's drifted too far left. The heart of the problem is this. The Democrats are putting their comical corruption on display for the world to see right now. They're broadcasting to the world that they take legalized bribes. Manchin is representing the oil industry. Kirsten Cinema is representing Big Pharma. They are broadcasting that to the world by stripping out popular provision after popular provision after popular provision. So the Democratic Party has a stench on it that they can't get off. Now, that's not to say Republicans aren't corrupt. They are phenomenally corrupt. But they're smart enough to not dive into that conversation. They just change the topic. They just go, all right, push that aside. Why do you think when we had the last uh, debate over, I think it was the stimulus checks, you turn on Fox News and they're talking about Dr. Seuss. And they're saying, the woke mob is trying to get rid of Dr. Seuss, crazy. They just changed the conversation. So Glenn Youngkin, who won't lift a finger to help working people and regular Americans, his argument is, hey, uh, Terry McAuliffe is uh, pushing this critical race theory nonsense, which is sectarianism, which is racist, which is anti-white, and this stuff is crazy. Man, they should stop doing this. So he just changed the conversation to some culture war bullshit, and Terry McAuliffe was like, yeah, let's fight about this. Why? Why would you fight about that? And why would your message be Trump bad when Trump's not even in office anymore? Woo, buckle up, baby. The midterms are going to be a bloodbath, son. The fact of the matter is this. The only way out for Democrats, and even this is a Hail Mary, pass the full $3.5 trillion bill with all of the popular provisions. On top of that, do another round of stimulus checks or eliminate all student loan debt through executive order, which Biden has the authority to do, but he just doesn't want to do, or legalize marijuana, or a mix of those things, or all of those things. And then even then, you have to brag about your accomplishments from right now until the election. And even then, you might still lose because you didn't do any voting rights reform or gerrymandering reform. So now Republicans have like a plus six point advantage no matter what. So even if you do all those popular things and you brag about those popular things and you move the needle in your direction, which you would if you did those things, you might only pick up, you know, five more points. And you pick up five more points. Well, guess what? If you need six a six-point advantage just to hold on to the numbers you have, you're still going to lose seats. The Democrats are pathetic and ineffectual, and FDR is rolling over in his grave right now. He is. He's rolling over in his grave. Unbelievable. Somehow it's the left's fault. Somehow it's the left's fault. Again, the only tiny grain of truth in it is there are many ultra-woke left-wing idiots who will say, yeah, let's fight the culture war all day. Don't listen to them. They're wrong. But don't get it twisted. It is not the left's fault by and large. You know whose fault it is? Corporate Democrats, conservative Democrats. It's the fault of the openly and brazenly corrupt. It's the fault of the people who have not delivered on their promises. That's whose fault it is. Maybe the problem is that Joe Biden said you were going to get $2,000 check, and you didn't. Said you were going to get a public option, and you didn't. Said you were going to get a $15 minimum wage, and you didn't. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe when you mix not delivering on policy with somebody with the personality of a bowl of oatmeal and 
going all in on culture war grievance playing defense, maybe you look like a total loser in that situation because you are. Beating a Republican should be the easiest thing on the planet, and they can't do it because they're offering nothing. If the Republican argument is, I want to do bad things, the Democratic response is, and I want to do nothing. I believe in nothing. Well, turns out a compelling voice for doing bad things can beat somebody who believes in nothing from time to time. And that should not surprise you. What Glenn Youngkin did is he walked that fine line with Trump's base and didn't get too crazy, but didn't denounce them. So the base came out for him and he picked off those suburban voters by just having a conversation about what he thought he could hammer McAuliffe on, which is critical race theory. That's it. That's all he had to do. And the Democrats are so pathetic and ineffectual, he couldn't, he couldn't win. He couldn't beat that. Now, I dare you to imagine a separate timeline where the $3.5 trillion uh, package already passed, where a $15 minimum wage already passed, where a public option already passed, where Biden delivered materially for the American people and they're seeing the effects of it. And I dare you to imagine a world where Terry McAuliffe's response and his campaign was not Trump bad, and yes, let's fight about critical race theory all day, where Terry McAuliffe's response was, critical race theory, you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to get you a higher minimum wage, or I, I'm going to support the PRO Act, or I am going to get rid of right to work. He supported so-called right to work, which is right to work for less. It's anti-worker garbage. It's anti-union garbage. What if he had a purely economic message? I'm going to improve the lives of Virginians. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise your wages. I'm going, to, I'm going to tangibly, materially, economically improve your life and your well-being. I'm going to update our infrastructure. And I'm a fighter for the people. What if his message was tangible? It was on economic policy. It was about improving lives. And every time Glenn Youngkin uttered some culture war bullshit, he swatted it aside and moved on to the issues that the American people care more about. In that timeline where Biden did some real shit and Terry McAuliffe ran on some real shit in a Democrat plus 10 state, the Democrat would have won. Don't let them tell you anything different. The fact of the matter is, here, I have some facts about Terry McAuliffe for you. He was co-chairman of President Bill Clinton's 1996 re-election campaign. He was chairman of the Democratic National Committee from 2001 to 2005, and he was chairman of Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign. He opposed repealing right to work when he was governor, and uh, he also made a big deal of a Bill Crystal endorsement. This is the person who lost. Not some swashbuckling populist leftist who was trying to improve people's lives. So don't let the media gaslight you. Don't let them gaslight you. And we know it's going to be the dominant narrative. We know the left is going to be blamed, and that's the dominant narrative. And um, if that convinces Biden to get even more conservative, if that convinces the Democrats to be even more conservative, we might see a bloodbath the likes of which we've never seen in U.S. history in these midterms. So buckle up. Okay. Next. So MSNBC um, was covering the Virginia election last night, and um, 
Nicole Wallace has some thoughts on what's to blame for Terry McAuliffe losing to Glenn Youngkin. You're not going to believe this, but here it is. When I sort of set out in September to understand where this president was, I, I, I heard sort of three analyses. I showed this with you guys in the break, that he lost independent voters and women around the pullout from Afghanistan. And I said at the time, I thought 95% of the public was for leaving, but it, it, it turns out a whole lot of the public did not like the way we left, and especially some of that softer part of the Biden coalition that came and voted for him in 2020, but was always going to be watching the news. They were mm-hmm. always going to be sensitive voters. They were always going to be, and, and not you know sticking their finger in the air, but they were always going to be watching. They are going to be watching and, and, and seeing how he performed, seeing how the vaccines rolled out, or seeing what happened. I don't know that anyone predicted Afghanistan would weigh in with those voters, but according to people who poll sort of center-right, to, to independence, that was really damaging for him. And, and, and Garrett pointing that out is the first time I've heard someone reported out from inside the Yunkin side. The Virginia governor's race was over the withdrawal from Afghanistan that moved independent voters in suburbanites. That moved independent voters in suburbanites. The withdrawal from Afghanistan. I don't know if you know this, a governor has absolutely Dickie McGee's ass to do with foreign policy. I, I have no way of checking this, but I can absolutely guarantee that Glenn Youngkin never said the word Afghanistan on the campaign trail once, and Terry McAuliffe never said the word Afghanistan on the campaign trail once. And I also guarantee that Voters in a statewide race know that foreign policy has nothing to do with the Commonwealth of Virginia. What are you talking about? What are you do- I know what they're doing. I know exactly what they're doing. What they're doing is going down the list, blaming the left or left-wing things for Biden losing. That's what they're doing. So, it, listen, it's already out there. Axios has an article about it. Biden's leftward drift is the problem. Political reporter talked about it. The chatter in D.C. is that the left is to blame. What they're trying to do is deflect and be like, well, it's really Bernie's fault. It's really AOC's fault. It's really the, the fault of left-wing ideas. Is Biden being too ambitious? Is Biden... Again, you're going to make me go to what I have saved in my phone, because that's where we at, we're at now. Um, elder care, 79% support. Modernizing K-12 school building, 73% support. Electricity grid modernization, 74% support. Medicare drug price negotiation, so lowering drug prices, 73% support. Lowering the Medicare age, 59%. Universal pre-K, 59%. Tuition-free community college, 58%. Um, Extending the child tax benefit, uh, it's plus nine. Okay. Every idea the left is pushing for is incredibly popular. Billionaire's tax, popular. Raising corporate taxes, popular. Raising taxes on the top 2%, popular. If all of those ideas are popular, and Biden is not getting those ideas implemented, What's the simple math on that? Oh, maybe if he did the popular things, that would make him more popular. I mean, it's almost a fucking tautology. It is a fucking tautology. Popular things are popular. And they can't figure that out. They can't fucking figure that out. Or they know, but they're lying. Or they were hired because they're never going to rock the boat, and they're always going to give you the conventional wisdom bullshit. It's one of those options. You pick which one. Somehow it's the left's fault. By the way, one of the only good things that Joe Biden did 
pulling out of Afghanistan, one of the only good things, pulling out of Afghanistan, an executive order that raised the minimum wage for federal contractors and federal employees to $15 an hour, signing the um, right to repair legislation. It used to be the case that if you're some farmer, you have to go to John Deere to get your tractor fixed. You can't even fix it yourself. And then they charge you money. And he said, no, right to repair, so I'm going to look out for the farmers. One of the few things that Joe Biden did that's popular and correct, that is morally and ethically sound, got to blame that. Even though it's a Virginia statewide race, even though it has nothing to do with foreign policy, even though I'm sure foreign policy wasn't mentioned once on the campaign trail, no, it's the fault of that. By the way, do you think voters are that stupid? Yeah. The number of Americans who wanted out of Afghanistan was astronomical. Yes, it's true. The poll showed, well, I don't like the way in which we got out. Okay, fair enough. Voters can digest that nuance. It was a good thing, but maybe the delivery wasn't perfect. They're not gonna, a politician's not going to be blamed as much for that as they would be blamed if they just do bad things or don't do good things. At least you made an effort at doing the right thing. At least you stood up to the military-industrial complex. We were at that war for 20 years. How much longer should we stay? 25, 30, 80? How much longer do you want to stay? Serious question. We couldn't deliver on our goals in the first 20 years, but I promise you by the 27th year, we're going to nail it. It's a fucking ruse. People are on to the fact that it's the military-industrial complex and people are making money off this and we're really jacking trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth and exploiting a region and this is an arm of U.S. imperialism. I mean, maybe voters can't go that deep into the specifics, but they get a sense, I don't like this. Our country's falling apart and we're building Kabul and Kandahar. Why don't you rebuild Detroit or Flint, Michigan? How about that? Voters get that. Nobody was thinking about Afghanistan and Virginia. Here's what they were thinking about. Terry McAuliffe believes in nothing and advocates for nothing. He's saying Donald Trump is bad. Yeah, I got it. What are you going to do? Nothing. He didn't say he was going to do anything. What he said is, oh, Glenn Youngkin is hammering me over the head with critical race theory shit. Yeah, let's fight that battle. Let, let me follow you down the rabbit hole of some culture war bullshit. Let me do that. So it turns out running on Trump bad when Trump isn't even in there is not an effective strategy. It turns out believing in nothing is not an effective strategy. It turns out fighting the Republicans on their terms in the culture war is not a good strategy. That's the problem. And the other thing is, look, Glenn Youngkin did a great job with how he crafted his campaign. What did he do? He walked a fine line on Trump, didn't denounce him, but didn't openly support him. He didn't want him to speak there, but he accepted his endorsement. He didn't mention immigration when that was Trump's top issue. He found a way of being Trumpy without being too Trumpy. So the base accepted him, but also those suburban voters who voted for Biden flipped to Youngkin. He just defined the race on his terms, brought up critical race theory, hammered Democrats as being out of touch and sectarian on culture war issues, and was able to coast to victory on that. And also, fact of the matter is, if McAuliffe's not saying he's going to do anything to materially improve your life, and Biden is stuck in neutral at best and not delivering on things that are positive that he said he was going to deliver on, the Democrats had a stench on them. They did. And so that's what's going to happen. There is no doubt there were a number of factors that led to the loss for Terry McAuliffe, but it is much more directly the fault of Joe Biden's inaction and inability to deliver on popular policies and Manchin and Cinema being colossally corrupt. They are much more to blame 
than anything Biden did on Afghanistan. By the way, Afghanistan was in the news nonstop for like two weeks where the media was bashing Biden over the head relentlessly. And then what happened? All of a sudden, gone, done. It's out. It's out of everybody's consciousness. It's out of everybody's mind. What happened? Well, I thought it was, whoo, worst thing that's ever happened in the history of forever. Oh, my God, everybody care about this. Everybody, everybody lose their mind. After two weeks, gone. People, people, the media's like, Afghanistan? I don't even know no Afghanistan. You know Afghanistan? Afghanistan's a place? Is that a thing? I don't even know what that means, Afghanistan. What happened? It's almost like the freakout was because corporate media is in bed with the military-industrial complex because they take money from them. And as we learned the other day, Raytheon lost $75 million because we pulled out of Afghanistan. It's almost like in that elite D.C. beltway, the flip-out was because the military-industrial complex was not going brrr as much. The money printer wasn't going brrr for them as much. So it was portrayed as, oh, my God, this is evil. This is wrong. This is terrible. This is crazy. How can this be the case? What's going on here? But then all of a sudden, oh, my God, look, it's gone. It's out of the news. That was always a top-down bullshit narrative driven from the elites. The one time Biden crosses the military-industrial complex is the one time he's portrayed as Satan reincarnate. By the way, and what happened with Trump? When did Trump get the most praise as president? When he bombed Syria. That was the day some liberal pundit said, this is the day he truly became president. They're always going to blame the left. Because the left threatens power, and they don't want power threatened. They're always going to blame the left. The fact of the matter is, the answer is right in front of us. Whether it's at the state level or at the national level, all Democrats need to do is state the obvious and do the obvious thing. Kick out the big money, go full economic populist, and deliver on those things, and then you win. FDR had won the presidency four times. Democrats had 80% of the House and 80% of the Senate in 1938. Why? Because Americans got a tiny little taste of social democracy and their lives were materially improving, and they were like, we love this! Hooray! Let's vote for the people who delivered this to us. The same thing could happen today, but you have to actually fucking deliver. Instead of delivering for Goldman Sachs, and Lockheed Martin, and all the other multinational corporations that have bought our political system, and the billionaires who've bought our political system. They really blamed Afghanistan. And she said, oh, people in, in Yunkin's campaign are saying this. People in Yunkin, Yunkin's campaign are fucking idiots. He tripped over his dick and stumbled on a decent uh, strategy to win. That's what happened. And his, you know, he was running against the world's least charismatic politician with no message. So there you have it. All right, next. To this point, there have been at least two separate occasions where the left held the line and refused to de-link the traditional infrastructure bill from the reconciliation package. And the reason they did that is because they know if they separate them and if they vote on the traditional infrastructure package, they have no leverage. What's to stop Manchin or Cinema or Warren or any of the corporate Democrats from turning around and saying, you know what? I don't support the reconciliation package. I don't support any reconciliation package. What's to stop them from doing that? There's nothing to stop them from doing that. The thing is, the centrists and the corporatists in the Democratic Party want that traditional infrastructure bill, in part because corporate America wants it. Now, how badly do they want it? I don't know. But the general sentiment is corporate America wants that traditional infrastructure bill and the, uh, the corporate Democrats, the conservative Democrats, want it as well. So you have leverage. In order to get that passed, okay, well, then you've got to pass this thing for us, the reconciliation bill. That's why they refuse to delink them. 
to have some leverage. Well, guess what? Looks like they're giving it all away. So what you're going to see here is Joe Manchin came out and did a press conference the other day and basically said, stop holding this hostage. It's not going to work. I'm not even in favor of this, of this watered-down $1.75 trillion bill. And so uh, I'm the man in this bitch and fall in line. And then what you're going to see is what happened immediately after that, after Manchin put some public pressure on the left, look at what Pramila Jaipal said. Last week, the Speaker urged, Speaker Pelosi urged the importance of voting and passing the BIF bill before the President took the world stage overseas. There's still no action. In my view, this is not how the United States Congress should operate or, in my view, has operated in the past. The political games have to stop. Twice now, the House has balked at the opportunity to send the BIF legislation to the President. As you've heard, there are some House Democrats who say they can't support this infrastructure package until they get my commitment on the reconciliation legislation. It is time to vote on the BIF bill, up or down, and then go home and explain to your constituents the decision you made. And I've always said, if I can't go home and explain it, I can't vote for it, and if I can, I, I will. I've worked in good faith for three months, for the past three months, with President Biden, Leader Schumer, Speaker Pelosi, and my colleagues on the reconciliation bill, and I will continue to do so. For the sake of the country, I urge the House to vote and pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Holding this bill hostage is not going to work in getting my support for reconciliation bill. Throughout the last three months, I've been straightforward about my con concerns that I will not support a reconciliation package that expands social programs and irresponsibly adds to our $29 trillion in national debt that no one seems to really care about or even talk about. Nor will I support a package that risks hurting American families suffering from historic inflation. Simply put, I will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact that it will have on our national debt, our economy, and most importantly, all of our American people. Every elected representative needs to know what they are voting for and the impact it has, not only on their constituents, but the entire country. We now feel like we have what we need. We are taking the president's word at um, the fact that he believes he can get 50 votes from the Senate. Um, and, you know, I hope that the two senators uh, that we've been waiting on these months um, who, who have come to the table in good faith and negotiated, that they understand that this is a leap of faith. But, uh, you know, assuming we get these, these final negotiations done, we're ready to pass uh, both bills. And I think the caucus feels very good about the fact that we've been able to do what we said from the beginning. Do what you said from the beginning. You said you were not going to delink the bills. You said you wouldn't on both of them until you had Manchin and Cinema signing on for it. They didn't sign on for it. You're not doing what you said from the beginning. You said you got what you needed. What you got is Joe Manchin coming out and spitting in your face. What you got is Joe Manchin saying, hey, stop playing the games, delink the bills, um, and by the way, I'm, all, I'm still not in favor of the bill. What? So he's telling you, Delink the bills now, and also, uh, even, even if you do that, I'm not even promising you I'm going to vote for a reconciliation package. What? On what planet do you have what you needed? You have the opposite of what you needed. He didn't sign on to it. So now, they're going to vote this week on both packages. The House is going to pass both packages. The traditional infrastructure bill. Now, that will become law. 
because it already passed the Senate. The reconciliation package has not passed the Senate. So what's going to happen? Either Manchin and Cinema or somebody else, some other you know, corporate conservative Democrat like Warner or some other one hiding in the shadows is going to come out and go, ha-ha, not in favor of this package. Mm, really not in favor of any package. They might not say that last part, but they wouldn't be in favor of any package. And you get nothing on reconciliation. Nothing. That's possible. What else is possible? What else is possible is Cinema, uh, Manchin, and maybe some of the other shadow, corrupt, conservative Democrats whittle this bill down even further. Maybe it gets to $1.5 trillion. Maybe it gets to $1 trillion. Maybe it gets to under $1 trillion. And then they say, this is all we're in favor of. Then the Senate passes that, and that goes back to the House, and the House would have to pass like a $1 trillion or $1.5 trillion or $900 billion reconciliation package. That's what's possible. Even under a best-case scenario, even under a best-case scenario, what happens? Let's say Mansion Cinema sign on to this $1.75 trillion bill, and they vote for it. Okay, then the $1.75 trillion bill becomes law, and the left lost all their leverage to push Joe Biden for more, which was my original plan. What did I tell you guys from the beginning? If that reconciliation bill goes under $2 trillion, I'm out. If there's means testing, I'm out. If there's uh, no climate stuff, I'm out. Okay, well, failed the very first prong, which is it's under $2 trillion. So if you're on the left, you have no red line. So then I said this. Look, I'm a reasonable dude. I understand the way Washington works. I understand it's a fucking disgusting cesspool of, of legalized bribery. I get it. I get all of it. Okay, Joe, you want me as a left congressperson to sign on to your shitty watered-down shell of a bill that's $1.75 trillion, which stripped out so many phenomenally popular programs. Fine. Here are my demands. Here's my list of eight or ten executive orders. I want you to abolish all student loan debt, all $1.73 trillion worth, legalize marijuana by changing the schedule from Schedule 1 to Schedule 5, um, free every single nonviolent drug offender in the country at the federal level, whether it's pardoning or commuting their sentences, um, and pardon Julian Assange. Make a list! Make a list of eight to ten things that he definitely can do through executive order and the things I listed, by the way, he can do through executive order. Make a list. Make a list. And say, you want my vote for this shitty piece of legislation? The only way you get it is if you deliver on these things. And then Joe Biden would be faced with a decision. Either I sign off on the executive orders or I can negotiate with the left and maybe, oh, I won't do eight of them, but I'll do three of them, whatever. But you get that tangible victory and then, okay, whatever, we pass the two shitty watered-down bills. That would be a victory. But now, by saying, oh, we're just going to, we're going to vote on both of the bills, pass the bills, even though we don't have Manchin and Cinema's, Cinema signing onto it, what you're saying is, we're already forward at $1.75 trillion. We might even buckle further if you lower it more and vote yes on that. And you have zero leverage. What leverage do you have? You have no leverage. You can't go to Biden and be like, sign these executive orders now. You can't do it. You can't do it. So what you're doing is folding like a cheap lawn chair, like you always fucking do, like you always do. So that's my reading of the situation. Now, I will say this, though. I've been told by people who are involved in what's happening there in D.C. that um, they do have Mansion and Cinema signing on. That's what I've been told. That what Joe Manchin is doing is putting on a show because he loves getting the heat from the left because it helps him in West Virginia when he runs for re-election. 
Um, that is what I've been told. I've also been told the left has gotten some executive order um, support from Biden. Now, I don't know the specifics of those executive orders. And honestly, I don't think I believe what I'm being told. I'll be nice and say it that way. I think that what this looks like at face value is what it is. And what I predicted will happen, the scenarios I gave you, one of those things is going to happen. I do not think that Mansion and Cinema have secretly signed on. Um, and I do not think the left got any sufficient executive order concessions. Maybe they got some executive order things, but I don't think it'll be sufficient. So it is possible that maybe that is true. Maybe they did secretly sign on. Maybe when it comes up for a vote, it will pass the $1.75 trillion, And maybe Biden does some executive orders. But my guess is, even in that scenario, um, there will still be at least a couple of provisions that are stripped out from the $1.75 trillion bill, so it gets even worse. And I, don't, I think the executive orders would also be watered down. That's my guess. So every instinct I have tells me, no, what this looks like it is is what it actually is, because every time in the past, that's what it is. And Pramila even said right there, we're taking a leap of faith. Same guy who didn't deliver on $15 minimum wage. Same guy who didn't give you a public option. Same guy who didn't give you $2,000 checks. We're going to take a leap of faith and trust him. Okay. So I think this looks like what it is. But uh, in, in the spirit of total transparency, I have to tell you what I've been told about what's going on there. Again, I don't really believe it, but that is one perspective that's been floated. And I have no doubt, here's what I do know. I bet you that's what the left flank in Congress has been told. And so that's why they maybe be willing to go along with this. In fact, definitely be willing to go along with this. Because they probably believe it when the Congressional Progressive Caucus leadership comes to them and says, hey, actually Mansion and Cinema did sign on. They're just showboating and pretending to be against it. And they would believe it when they're said, oh, Biden is making concessions on executive orders. So we'll see what happens. But I absolutely fear the worst. I think the worst will happen. You just hope for the best. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going in on Democrats buckling on lower drug prices and much, much more. Stay right there, y'all.
a bitch. I'm back, everybody. Let's keep it going. I still got a zillion things to get to. Um, hold on. Let me see here. Okay. All right. Let's dive into it. <clears throat> Watching these negotiations over the Build Back Better bill has been one of the most frustrating things in modern American politics, because you are getting a front row seat to how the sausage is made. And if you follow it closely, you know all the ins and outs and the details, and it is just as rotten and grotesque and disgusting as anyone could have imagined. So we have a perfect example of this kind of stuff today. Kirsten Cinema took now the numbers over $900,000 from Big Pharma, and she flipped her position on lowering drug prices. She used to run for office promising to lower drug prices, and now her specific demand in this Build Back Better bill is, you better take out the provision where we lower drug prices. So the Democrats dropped it. They dropped it. They dropped the provision. That's egregious. It's outrageous. Democrats have been running since 2006 on lowering drug prices. So you, you always promise it, then you get elected, then you never deliver. Are you going to run in 2048 on that as well? And why should anybody fucking believe you when you say it? But, okay, in comes the left, the so-called left, to, uh, to save the day here. And they were able to work out a compromise. You're not going to believe this. So Laura Davidson says the following, news, the U.S. government would negotiate just 10 drugs starting in 2025 under a new compromise drug pricing plan, Alex Roth reports. The proposal was pitched to Democratic holdouts who have opposed previous broader schemes to lower drug prices. So they went from we're going to lower drug prices to we're not going to lower them at all because Big Pharma bought many of our senators, Menendez too, there's a number of them, um, and now they're like, it's okay. We're going to compromise. What if we lowered just 10 drug prices by 2025? This is beyond parity. You wonder why. Americans despise politics and our politicians. You wonder why. How can it be that after an election, you poll the American people a month later and Congress has like a 20% approval rating? We just picked those people. We just picked them. In theory, it's supposed to be, we love them. We just, we just got them in there. And then you poll Americans are like, oh, only 20% of the country approves of what Congress is doing. Every, Everybody knows we're always picking among the lesser of two evils. Always. Why? Because who are they representing first and foremost? Their donors, the lobbyists, the billionaires, the multinational corporations. That's who they're, that's their primary constituency and their primary concern. The American people, an afterthought. Oh, do we run on lowering drug prices? What if we totally dropped it? Just kidding. We negotiated a compromise. Ten drugs by 2025. If you happen to be one of the people who takes a drug where the price is not reduced and you can't afford it, suck it up, buttercup. Do you have to ration your insulin 
Ooh. Has somebody died from rationing their pills that they desperately need? Is that what happened? Hmm. You should have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. This is the biggest issue in our politics. You could argue it's the only issue in our politics because it leads to all the other issues. Namely, it's corruption. It's the mother of all issues. It's the reason why we can't substantively address almost anything. What is the takeaway? What's the takeaway from the American people if they happen to see this? And a lot of them are going to see it. Probably most of them are going to see this. Nonsense. The Democrats just did. They broadcasted to the world that they're corrupt. That's what they did. When you go from let's negotiate all drug prices and lower the prices to let's not put it in there at all to we compromise, we're going to do 10 of them by 2025, you are screaming through a megaphone to the American people, we represent industry before you. We represent big pharma above you. You need to keep rationing your drugs. You can't afford this shit. Well, this is the best we could do. Be an adult. Don't be immature. This is how Washington works. You have to compromise. You have to find the middle ground. It is not virtuous to split the difference between rank corruption and common sense. In fact, that is a vice. Now, the Republican Party, totally bought and owned. Totally bought and owned by Big Pharma. Totally bought and owned by the military industrial complex. Totally bought and owned by Big Oil. But they have the common sense to just stay the fuck out of the fight and not say anything. They're out in the corner talking about Dr. Seuss or critical race theory or whatever the fucking culture war du jour scandal is. Because they know, huh, we're totally bought known on the economic stuff. Let's just change the conversation. Let's go all in on the culture war. Let's pretend to be the savior of the common man and woman by defending their, their social values. They're smart enough to do that. They're smart enough to just change the conversation. Talk about something else. Deflect. Obfuscate. Now, it's evil, and it's wrong, and it's terrible, but at least it's not politically stupid. This is the most politically dead shit I've ever seen in my life. I mean, obviously, from a policy perspective, it goes without saying, it is abysmal. It's abysmal. It's corrupt. It's immoral. It's unethical. It's every negative word you could think of. But from a politics perspective, it's the dumbest thing you could ever do. May as well tattoo on all of your fucking foreheads, we are corrupt, we represent big pharma, we represent industry. Ten drug prices by 2025. Imagine being in the fucking room when they negotiated that. Imagine being in the room when the conversations were going back and forth. Well, we said we were going to lower drug prices since 2006 for all drugs because we pay more than the rest of the world, but we can't do it because Big Pharma owns us. So then we said no, uh, no negotiation on any drug prices. What if we did half of them? No, we can't do half of them. My lobbyist buddy would be really pissed off about that, and I might not get paid by Merck or Pfizer when I leave this shitty place. Okay, can't do half of them. How about 100? No, can't do 100. That's, you know, that, that overreaches... And I don't want to threaten my wallet in the future. Hmm. Well, I'm running for re-election, and I need more money. And obviously, GlaxoSmithKline steps up to the plate for that. So, 50 drugs? Nah, that's too much. That's, that's overreaching. You know, that's, that's a, a little too socialist. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the 
they said 10 drugs by 2025. And they expect you to be thankful. Imagine that shit. They expect you to be thankful. If we don't address the corruption, if we don't get the money out of the system, we're doomed. There's only one way around the corruption, too, by the way, which is national, federal-level direct ballot initiatives, basically direct democracy on specific issues at the federal level. Because whenever you do direct democracy stuff at the state level, 80 or 90% of the time, the common sense position wins. So, for example, in uh, Tucson, Arizona, they voted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour by a two-to-one margin. This is the same state that elected Kirsten Sinema, who famously voted down $15 minimum wage, <laughs> like that, for the whole country. The actual voters themselves are like, obviously, $15 minimum wage. Donald Trump won Florida in the 2020 election, but the state voted over 60% to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So when you give people a direct vote, legalize marijuana, most of the time it comes up, it wins. The only times it ever lost were, number one, when it was uh, legalizing it and basically giving monopoly rights to some schmuck, and uh, when you had a billionaire flood the airwaves and mislead people about it. So it's not foolproof, but at least like 80% of the time, you'll get the right answer. So instead of just direct democracy on a state level, we should have it at a federal level. That's how you can go around the corruption, have people directly vote on $15 minimum wage, have people directly vote on whatever it might be, the PRO Act, so pro-union legislation, have them directly vote on legalizing marijuana, whatever it is. You either need to do direct democracy or you need to get all the big money out of the system, the billionaire money, the corporate money, but that would require either a constitutional amendment or something that is nearly impossible to get done. But, guys, this is where we're at. FDR is rolling over in his grave right now. LBJ is rolling over in his grave. JFK is rolling over in his grave right now. And he wasn't even as left as LBJ or FDR. I mean, this is comical. Ten drug prices by 2025. You could make something if you tried. It's like a caricature. It's a parody of a corrupt party that's horse trading over lives. If this is the best we could do on this issue, just think about every other issue and what goes on behind the scenes and what kind of change we're likely to get. Jesus Christ. All right, next. So a poll came out the other day that is absolutely astonishing. I have to share this with you. So Donald Trump has been going around the country um, making media appearances and basically saying, I still won the election. What? So narcissistic and self-aggrandizing and uh, self-obsessed and petty that he can't stop talking about that shit. Well, there are results to that. Uh, There are consequences. Mediaite says, a new national poll from the Public Religion Research Institute published on Monday shows that 31% of Americans, 31%, believe the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. That figure includes an overwhelming 82% of Americans who trust Fox News more than any other media outlet, 97% of those who trust One America News Network and Newsmax, and two-thirds of Republicans generally. Two-thirds of Republicans. The poll also finds that 30% of Republicans believe violence may be needed to resolve domestic issues in the United States. Only 17% of independents and 11% of Democrats felt the same way. 
Uh, the PRRI's 12th Annual American Value Survey focused on the impact of former President Donald Trump's false claims that the 2020 U.S. election was stolen and other conspiracy theories that fueled the January 6th U.S. Capitol insurrection. In total, 18% of the 2,500 adults sampled across all 50 states said they agree with the statement. Because things have gotten so far off track, true American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save our country. So uh, 18% of the entire country says violence, yeah. And um, what was the other number? 30% of Republicans say that. 82% of Fox News viewers, 82% say Trump really won the election. Look, I'm on the left. My main framework in analyzing not just the country, but the world, is a material class analysis. I am without a doubt of the belief that if you materially improve people's lives, xenophobia drops, bigotry drops, belief in conspiracy theories drops, all these social ills, even mental health problems, it drops. It drops. Now, is it a panacea? Is it a utopia? No. But if you materially deliver for people, they will deliver for the politicians who materially deliver for them, and social ills across the board go down. That's what I believe. Um, And I think the plethora of the evidence throughout history supports that idea. We have evidence from the U.S. that that's the case. However, having said that, when you mix in bad material economic conditions with rampant tsunami of lies, misinformation, untrue conspiracy theories, this is what you get. This is what you get. This is a kind of misinformation that absolutely is dangerous. Because, guys, put yourself in the mind of one of these people. Put yourself in the mind of a Trump supporter who is miserable, they lost their job, or they're making shit wages, personal life is falling apart. Um, They're not doing well. And then on top of that, they get fed this line 24-7 that the president that they associate with had the election stolen from them. And the big, bad, evil Democrats are to blame. What's that person liable to do? I'll tell you what, if that's really the, the facts on the ground, they would think that storming the Capitol is the bare minimum. They'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even hurt anybody when I was in there. I was just trying to, you know, reclaim it for the people or whatever the fuck. Shame on all the media outlets because they know better. Maybe you could say One American News and Newsmax don't, although I think we covered a story that the people who work there view themselves as actors, so they would know better. Um, But Fox News knows better. There was some Republican congressman who said, in no uncertain terms, that like literally every Republican in the Senate knows Biden won the election and it wasn't stolen from Trump. And maybe, maybe there's like a handful in the Congress that truly believe Trump won the election, but the overwhelming majority, no, he didn't. So they know, but they're hush-hush about it because they want to protect their ass for their next election. And the Fox News host, they know, they know. Steve Ducey fucking knows. Brian Kilmeade knows, even though he barely knows anything. They know. They know. Tucker knows. Tucker knows Donald Trump didn't win the election. And uh, they're refusing to state the obvious and repeat it and drive it home and basically give people a healthy dose of get the fuck over it. Again, if you materially address people's economic concerns, 
if you improve their lives, all of the deranged side effects become less prominent, less severe, and become more manageable. That's true. But it's also true that even if we lived in a thriving social democracy, there would still be a huge problem with charlatans, liars, con men, frauds, and people falling for them. Because let's say, let's say we lived in a thriving social democracy where everybody's doing well. I mean, I don't think Trump would have been elected in the first place, but for argument's sake, let's say he was. Um, we could cut this number in half, and it's still a huge problem. 82% of Fox News viewers, let's say it was 41% of Fox News viewers, think the election was stolen. That's still fucking crazy. That, so 30% of Republicans say, 31% say, uh, maybe violence. Maybe violence. Okay, 15% say maybe violence. I mean, that is more manageable, but it's still more than one out of every 10 Republicans who are like, yeah, maybe violence. So misinformation, conspiracy theories, deranged beliefs are a problem on their own, no doubt about it. I just think they're less of a problem if you deliver for people. Final point, I've made this point a thousand times within the past week, but I keep bringing it up because it's fascinating, it's phenomenal, and it's, it's instructive. In 1938, Democrats had 80% of the House of Representatives and 80% of the Senate. That's when FDR had already been in office for a while. FDR won the presidency four times. He was beloved by the country. Why? Because he materially delivered for people. Now, there was still, you know, at that time, obviously, we hadn't addressed our racial issues yet. We hadn't addressed them. And those needed to be addressed on their own. They were their own issue unto themselves. But there's no doubt that when you materially deliver for people, hatred drops, insane beliefs drop, and we're generally healthier. So this should concern you that there's a total disconnect from reality among a large portion of society. And these things have consequences. So I don't know what the answer is, but let's start with being ruthless, straight shooters and truth tellers because the deeper societal issues and economic issues need to be addressed, but that's not our wheelhouse. We don't have the levers of power necessarily. So all we could do is be the last line of defense trying to remind people of reality. Okay. Next. Okay. Old Joe Biden is not doing so well, y'all. He's not doing so well. So a new poll came out from Marist, and I don't know if I've ever seen anything like this in the middle of a president's term. Take a look. Top of the 2024 tickets, only 36% of Democrats say they want Biden to be the top of the 2024 ticket, which means 44%, almost half of Democratic voters say it's got to be somebody else. Holy shit. Holy shit. Now, I didn't see any poll like this during Obama's term, but I guarantee you it wasn't like this. I guarantee you it wasn't like this. It wasn't like this during Trump's term. It wasn't. Um, definitely wasn't like this during George W. Bush's term because 9-11 happened in 2001 and he was super popular until like 2003, 2004, and he still beat John Kerry. 
in the 04 election. I've never seen anything like this. I haven't. So Democratic primary voters have turned on Joe Biden. Now, the other thing is, look at Trump there. 50% of Republicans want Trump to be the top of the ticket in 2024. Someone else is only 35%. Guys, if that primary were today, Trump would drax them clowns. He would obliterate everybody. Obliterate them. Didn't matter who the opponent was. He would beat them. Now, 2024 is a while away. You never know what could happen. These guys are old, you know. Um, but if Trump wins, he's almost a shoo-in. If he runs, he's almost a shoo-in for the nomination for the Republicans. If he doesn't run, then maybe get DeSantis or Pence or something like that. But this, uh, this is something else. He, Trump has held his base, which has given him the continuing popularity. Joe Biden has not held his base. He, was, he won on a coalition of people who don't really give a fuck but don't like Trump. But there's no fervent support for Joe Biden. They are gonzo. Whoever made up his so-called base is gonzo. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe COVID is still ravaging the country, and he hasn't done anything substantive since the $1,400 checks, which were a long time ago, and he's currently stripping every popular provision out of his Build Back Better legislation. Maybe that has something to do with it. But then, okay, here's the scarier thought. So let's say what looks likely to happen on the right happens. Trump wins the primary. Let me ask you a question. Who on the Democratic side is going to take him on and win? You think Mayor Pete is going to do it? Kamala Harris is going to do it. Kamala Harris, the person who is currently being hidden by the Biden administration, because the Biden administration knows the more she talks, the more people dislike her. I mean, Joe Biden is not exactly the world's most charismatic guy or likable guy. And Joe Biden's out there, and they're like, of course, the president can be out there talking. They're hiding Kamala, because they know that she has the Hillary effect, where the more she talks, the more people dislike her. So who's gonna, what's going to happen? Bernie's going to be 1,000 years old. He's not going to run again. Um, who would take on Trump? Who would take on Trump and have a chance? Seriously. Getting scary, dog. It's absolutely getting scary. Um, all, all you could hope for is that there's some Democrat who comes out of nowhere who's Bernie-esque, but in a younger package, a charismatic package, palatable package to you know, hold together a coalition. But I don't see it. Who would it be? Who would it be? I, I have zero trust in any of the people who are on the list, the short list of Democratic contenders. I have zero hope for any of them. I mean, maybe you could say there's some random governor who's a Democrat who might do it, but that governor would need to up his or her name recognition a lot quickly, which is difficult, which is difficult. I mean, maybe you could say John Ossoff or Warnock, but again, they would need to up their public profile massively. And I don't know if they are really as good as Bernie. Don't get it twisted. They've been, for coming out of a red state, they ain't no Joe Manchin and they ain't no Kirsten Cinema, So they're okay. But are they like Bernie? Do, do they have that charisma? Can they rocket their uh, name recognition up quickly? I don't know. I don't know. But right now, Democrats should be shaking in their boots because 2022 looks like a bloodbath. And if these are the facts for 2024, woo, hold on tight, y'all.
every day the situation when it comes to money and politics gets worse and worse in this country, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. So we have a new story. This is from Axios. New. The FEC has ruled foreign donors can finance U.S. referendum campaigns, that's direct ballot initiatives, opening the door to foreign spending on fights over high-profile policy issues. This is sheer lunacy. Wait until, you, wait until I get to their rationale. Wait until I get to their rationale. Well, in fact, I'll just tell you right now. Their rationale is, that's not an election, so it doesn't count. That's not an election? Well, what is it? Are we playing Park Cheesy? That's not an election. What does that mean, it's not an election? Oh, an election is only when you vote for a person, not on the direct issues themselves. You're voting for a person who then votes on the direct issues. So you could argue there's even more of an election than electing a representative because you're talking about the exact issues and voting directly on them. That doesn't count. That's not the same thing as voting. It is literally voting. Okay, insane, insane. So um, let me give you the specifics on it. Foreign nationals are barred from donating to U.S. political candidates or committees. Because of course they should fucking be. What are you, insane? You want some billionaire Saudi businessman? buying a politician and making them even more corrupt than they currently are and they're already phenomenally corrupt? You want some Israeli politician buying whatever uh, policy they want in the U.S. and they kind of already get a lot of that, but it would make it even worse. You want some uh, dictator doing it? Is that what you want? Of course, foreign nationals should be able to donate to U.S. politicians because then not only are U.S. politicians going to be more beholden to corporations over their constituents, they're going to be more beholden to foreign moneyed interest and schmucks. This is crazy. Um, So the FEC's decision is allowing foreign nationals to support ballot committees. And now they can directly affect U.S. voters and domestic policy. Previously, they couldn't. So, by the way, one of the things that is often voted on in direct referendums at the state level is redistricting. So if some dictatorship likes the Republicans because the Republicans give them more money, more support, more weapons, why wouldn't foreign countries uh, fund the direct ballot initiatives and propagandize the people and get them to support a Republican gerrymandering plan? They would do that. And then what would the Democrats do in response? Well, they probably have to give more money and more support and more weapons to a dictatorship so the dictatorship either doesn't spend against the Republicans or spends in favor of the Democrats for the direct ballot referendum. So you're going to be propagandized now, not just by corporate money, but by foreign money. Now, to be fair, they didn't say specifically in this ruling that the redistricting thing can also be funded by foreign nationals. But the general idea is Direct ballot initiatives, period, can be funded by foreign nationals. So whether it's on a specific issue, domestic policy, or it's on redistricting, you know, my reading of the situation is it probably will be allowed for redistricting and not just on the specific policy issues. I think both are equally bad, though. Um, So the decision, they say this. This is interesting. The decision only concerns federal law. States remain free to outlaw foreign funding for state registered ballot committees. So, in other words, we don't have federal direct ballot initiatives in this country. We don't have federal direct democracy in this country. Um, 
at least yet. I, I would love for that to happen. Um, but we do have it in a lot of different states. But what they're saying is if a state decides to ban the foreign money, they can. But now you're depending on states to pass a law and do the right thing. And as of right now, only seven states already ban foreign money from influencing the state initiatives. So um, in Maine, a Canadian-owned power company financed a ballot committee pushing for new energy transmission lines. And Governor Janet Mills, who's a Democrat, recently vetoed legislation to ban foreign ballot measure funding. So my guess is she's in the pocket of that company. She's doing the bidding of that company. There's some financial incentive there, or else why would she have taken that position? In a 4-2 vote in July, the FEC ruled that ballot initiatives are not elections under existing federal law. Therefore, foreign donation prohibition doesn't apply. This is ludicrous. This is ludicrous. We already have a situation where our politicians represent billionaires, they represent lobbyists, they represent corporations over the people. You've never seen a clearer example of it than with this Build Back Better negotiation, where Democrats went from, we're going to lower all the drug prices to, we're going to lower none of the drug prices to, let's just compromise and lower 10 drug prices by 2025. That's all because Big Pharma owns our politics, period. That's all that is, period. What do you think is going to happen here? Pick a country, any country, doesn't matter how repressive or authoritarian it is, but that money flows in and their bidding will be done. And they will propagandize the American people on these direct ballot initiatives. Now, thankfully, I will say this. This is the only silver lining. When it comes to these direct ballot initiatives, like 80% of the time, the correct side wins. So sometimes even with vicious propaganda campaigns, common sense wins out. Um, But the more money, the more influence either corporations or foreign nationals have, the more likely it is you chip away at the win rate for the correct side. So, and, and beyond that, even just in principle, this is ludicrous. So the same people who yelp and scream and bitch and moan about the fall of America, this facilitates the fall of America. You, what, what do you want, some Chinese billionaire or a, you know, Communist Chinese Party leader flooding money for state initiatives? Is that what you want? Or some Israeli or Saudi Arabian or, or UAE or whatever? Is that what you want? So now on top of Merck and Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, on top of them, on top of ExxonMobil and Chevron, allow in the foreign corruption too. I mean, this country is a joke. It's a joke. There's a joke. I don't even know where to begin in addressing all of the ways in which we've regressed. We're in a legendary era in American history of hyper-corruption. And I do think that that's how the history books will write this period, unless we somehow manage to dig our way out of it, which would require a lot, including basically a new FDR. Bleak, man. Bleak shit. All right, next. President Trump um, did some random radio show here. I don't even know who this person is. But he said something that blew up a little bit online because, I mean, it really just, he unmasks himself and he unmasks D.C. here, and he doesn't even realize it. So listen to what 
President Trump said on Israel. Well, you know, the biggest change I've seen in Congress is Israel literally owned Congress. You understand that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And it was so powerful. It was so powerful. And today it's almost the opposite. Uh, you have between AOC and Omar and these people that hate Israel. They hate it with a passion. They're controlling Congress, and Israel is not a force in Congress anymore. It's, I mean, it's just amazing. I've never seen such a change. And we're not talking about over a very long period of time. But I think you know exactly what, I, what I'm saying. They had such power, Israel had such power, and rightfully, over Congress. And now it doesn't. It's incredible. That is an astonishing admission. So there's one thing he says there that's completely factually false and absurd. And there's another thing which does reflect a reality, and his feelings on it are noteworthy. He said Israel, quote, rightfully owned Congress. Rightfully? A foreign country rightfully owned Congress. Imagine he said that shit about Russia. Russia rightfully owns Congress. The meltdown that Democrats would be having would be legendary. It'd be the main issue in the news for like two or three weeks. Donald Trump confirms he's Vladimir Putin's puppet. He says about Israel, only in lefty circles online and some heterodox right-wing circles did it blow up. Donald Trump says Israel rightfully owned Congress. Rightfully. America first! What I really mean is Israel first. Because they rightfully owned our legislative body. That's not America first, dog. That is Israel first. That's what that is. That's exactly what that is. Nobody can argue otherwise. Nobody. So he said Israel rightfully owned Congress. Well, I actually, I'm, I'm an old school lefty. I am of the belief America first. I want Medicare for all in this country. I want free college in this country. I want a living wage in this country. I want unions in this country. I want to end the corruption in this country. He ain't no America first. Israel rightfully owned Congress. Astonishing thing to say. Now, the thing he says that's obviously absurd is, well, they owned Congress. They were really powerful, but now they don't. They have a lot of sway over our politics. A lot. Now, I would say the power the Israel lobby has is maybe equal to the power that the Saudi lobby has. Um, I'd say the power Israel has over Congress is equivalent to that of the power multinational corporations have over Congress and the military-industrial complex. Um, But they certainly have just as much sway as ever, if not more. If not more. He brings up, you know, you got Tlaib and Omar. They've changed the game now, you know, uh, Israel doesn't own Congress anymore. There's a handful of Democrats who are correct on this issue who point out APAC money sways politicians. That's not anti-Semitic to point it out. It's factual. In the same way Saudi money influences politicians, that's not Islamophobic to point that out. So are, are we forgetting? There was, we already fund Iron Dome to the hilt. We already do a multi-billion dollar weapons giveaway to Israel. We already subsidize them every year. And then on top of that, we added, what, another billion or 10 billion or whatever it was recently? And AOC even did the cowardly vote of present. She changed her vote from no on more Iron Dome funding to present. Cowardly. There's only a handful of Democrats who are on the right side of it. 
Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, I forget the others. I forget the other. I don't even remember what the, how the others voted. But there was only a handful of Democrats. You can count them on one or two hands who voted the right way on that shit. And Trump says Israel used to own Congress, but they don't own it anymore. And even the slightest deviation from the status quo is holy hell is rained down on you. You're called anti-Semitic. They say you want to wipe out the Jews. If you just say, I don't want to do more Iron Dome funding, extra Iron Dome funding. I mean, we give Israel money. They have universal health care. We don't. Maybe they should give us the money. How about that? Donald Trump, Israel rightfully owns, owned Congress. Jesus Christ. By the way, I do think Trump has lost a step, by the way. In 2016, he ran a fake populist campaign, which got him in the White House. Now, he wasn't a real populist because he didn't deliver on the promises. He was a fake populist. He mixed in fake populism with rampant xenophobia. You know, a totally complete shutdown of Muslims. Uh, The immigrants coming here, Mexicans coming here are criminals. They're rapists. I assume some are good people. So he ran on both xenophobia, and ultranationalism, along with fake economic populism. He lost so many, uh, a step or two since he was in office. Because his 2020 campaign was all personal grievance, narcissism, um, more culture war tripe. And I don't think 2015 or 16 Trump would have said some shit like this. I think now he's got D.C. brain himself. And so he's all narcissism, and he ends up saying shit like this. Remember when Trump argued that, like, Saudi Arabia did 9-11 and they're the problem and we need to, like, divorce them effectively? That's pre-D.C. Trump. Sometimes he'd say some shit like that, which is true. Post-D.C. Trump says shit like this. Israel rightfully owned Congress because he's surrounded by people who feel like Israel should rightfully control our politics. When he was in D.C., a lot of people in his staff, standard right-wing position and standard corporate Democratic position is, It's great that Israel and Saudi Arabia have a lot of sway over our system. This should have been bigger news, that's for sure. Next. Josh Hawley, Republican Senator Josh Hawley, was speaking at some National Conservatism Conference, and he was talking about the impact that feminism has had on men. And he said something hilarious. Can't we be surprised that after years of being told that they are the problem, that their manhood is the problem, more and more men are withdrawing into the enclave of idleness and pornography and video games? I found the comment by one young man to a Wall Street Journal reporter particularly evocative and particularly heartbreaking. He said, I'm sort of waiting for a light to come on so I can figure out what to do next. Okay, there's a lot to say about this. So um, he talks about, well, there are years and years of men being told they're the problem, like boys being told they're the problem, and toxic masculinity and feminism and all this stuff. I'm 33 years old. I'm a classic standard millennial. 
um, there was no point in my life where I felt like uh, my, I was told my masculinity is the problem. And I am, what's the new uh, current day lingo on this stuff? I am a cisgender, heterosexual, white male. And I've never been told. And I never felt like I'm not allowed to like the things I like, do the things I do, act the way I act. Now, look, maybe I'm lucky. Maybe there are some people who do feel like, oh, I can't act like this or, or be myself or whatever. My advice to those people would be, fuck the haters, act like yourself. So in a weird way, I'm actually going to take the conservative position on this, and he's taking the non-conservative position. Because when it comes to your social life and your personal life, I am huge on the idea, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Sort that shit out yourself. Get yourself together. And look, it, it's almost like a, a, almost like a Jordan Peterson type message in a way. I think that I totally am not with Jordan on politics. I think he's not correct on a lot of political stuff, and I'm putting that kindly. Um, but I think when it comes to psychology stuff, even though his personal life is sort of a mess and he had all these problems, put that aside. On paper, the stuff he's telling young men to do, like, hey, man, uh, you want a wife, you want kids, get your act together. Become more attractive, become more appealing, get a job, clean your fucking room. Like all, so that's my take on it. And if you feel like people in your life or society is telling you, you can't be yourself, you can't do this, you can't do that, I give the same advice to you that I would give to somebody who's in a marginalized group, you know, like LGBTQ or person of color, whatever. Unapologetically be yourself. Rep yourself. Wear it on your sleeve. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be embarrassed of. You know, I am the stereotypical dude of my age. You know, I like watching sports. I do. I like, uh, you know, I he talks about being idle as if that's a bad thing. I like being idle from time to time. And that's the other part of this, the freedom part of this. So he brings up, oh, men are being told they're the problem. So now the backlash to that is they're withdrawing into idleness, porn, and video games. I got news for you, Josh Hawley. Men have always, from time to time, pulled back into idleness because sometimes idleness feels good. I've done that in my life from time to time. And I look back on it fondly. At the time I was being idle, I needed to be idle. I needed to get away. I mean, I'm also, even though it doesn't look like it, I'm also a big introvert. So that's one of the reasons why I would go down that path. But it's not because of society or because people are feeling judged that they're retreating to porn. People like porn. People who are not uh, under attack in any way or feel like their masculinity is being questioned in any way, watch porn. Uh, almost everybody watches porn. The overwhelming, I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, 90%, 95% of people, I mean, probably 100% have at some point in their life watched porn, but regularly, I don't know, you tell me 80, 90%, porn has appeal to people because people are, for the most part, sexual. There's some asexual people, but for the most part, people are sexual. Uh, you know, video games. Is there a small percentage of people who are maybe addicted to it and it is negatively impacting other aspects of their life? Sure. Maybe it's the same thing for porn. There's a small percentage that are addicted where it's negatively impacting other parts of their life. The overwhelming majority of people can play video games in a normal, you know, responsible way and can watch porn in a normal, responsible way. And he frames it like it's a bad thing. And he frames it like it's the fault of um, either 
women or society more broadly for putting men down for being masculine. Now, again, I never felt under attack for being a standard boy and now a standard man. And I would pose it to you uh, people in the audience. I mean, the, the majority of my audience is male. I pose it to you guys. Did you ever feel like you're, you being yourself was kind of under attack if you're, let's say, a, a straight man? I never felt it, ever. Not once in my life did I feel like it wasn't okay for me to be myself. In fact, I think it's probably easier for me to be myself than for somebody who's part of some marginalized community to be themselves. You know? Um, I don't get this, and you see this a lot on the right, demoralizing over personal lives, and, I mean, really, it's kind of an anti-freedom position or this judgment that porn and video games are by definition bad or idleness is by definition bad. Sometimes idleness is good. And most people who watch porn doesn't ruin their life. Most people who play video games doesn't ruin their life. These aren't inherently problems. And to the extent that they are a problem, either get help for some sort of real addiction or, and again, this would be my um, advice to most people, fucking pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work on it. As much as when it comes to economic policy, I believe in everybody should get a fair shot. It should be an equal playing field. The basics should be met because we live in a modern, industrial, civilized society. As much as I believe in a, a mix of the collective and the individual when it comes to economics, when it comes to your personal life, your private life, your social life, I'm the opposite. I'm hardcore individualist. In the same way that when it comes to social issues, I'm a hardcore individualist, which is why, you know, when I take one of the political compass tests, it says I'm libertarian left, libertarian on social issues, as in live and let live on social issues and on economic issues left. So, yeah, I don't like it seems like he's whining and playing the victim for young men in this country. And as somebody who was very recently a young man. Obviously, I'm not anymore. I'm in my 30s, but I would say I don't need your fake grandstanding hero speech. I don't need you to pretend like I'm downtrodden or oppressed or I can't be myself. I don't need you to do that. And what I need you to do is not judge the shit out of people for totally normal things, like from time to time being idle, watching porn, or playing video games. If you are into porn or video games or idleness, as long as it's not negatively affecting other aspects of your life, and for the overwhelming majority of people, it's not negatively affecting other aspects of their lives, then it's totally fine. I believe in freedom. So that's my rant on this. I, I thought that this segment would be more funny because he, you know, he, it's basically like an anti-porn thing he puts out there. But it actually ended up being more serious. Um, weird. I don't know why that is. But I guess I really do take issue with the idea that he's putting out there. I do. Um, Nothing wrong with reasonable consumption of porn. Nothing wrong with reasonable playing of video games. Nothing wrong with occasional idleness. And if you feel like, hey, I have a real problem here and needs to be addressed, well, address it. But definitely, don't just blame broader society. Don't just blame the culture. Rep yourself. Rep who you are, unapologetically. And if somebody doesn't like it or feel judged by society, then say, fuck off to the people who don't like it and fuck off to society. And you do what you want and let the chips fall where they may. Okay, next. So we have yet another poll on the 
skyrocketing support for unions among this recent strike wave. This is from More Perfect Union. More Perfect Union and Blue Rose Research ran a national survey of 2,450 voters from October 18th to October 24th to assess voters' attitudes toward organized labor and strikes. Majorities of Americans said they view labor unions favorably. 58% would support unions at their place of work, 54%, and agree that the current strike wave is long overdue, 53%. Thousands of workers are currently on strike across the country, including 10,000 John Deere workers. By the way, they rejected the most recent proposal from management, and they want more, so solidarity to those workers, in Iowa and Illinois, and 1,400 Kellogg's workers in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nebraska, and Tennessee. The poll found that while majorities of Americans at every income level said they support having a union at their workplace, the strongest support, get this, came from Americans who make less than $25,000 per year, 58%, and between $25,000 and $50,000 per year, 57%. Among the wealthiest respondents, those making more than 150K, a smaller majority, but still 52% support a union at their workplace. Similarly, while majorities at every education level said they want a union at their workplace, support was strongest, 60% among people with less than a high school education. In 2020, Donald Trump won voters with a high school education or less by 15 points. Do you understand the takeaway from this story? Donald Trump cleaned up in that category, people with less than a high school education. 60% of them support unions. What's the path for Democrats to win back those people? Strong, unapologetic, vocal support of unions. Imagine if Joe Biden sided with the John Deere workers, sided with the Kellogg workers, went to go participate in a strike, used the bully pulpit on this front. Imagine he did that. Imagine It'd be a game changer. Politics is fluid. It's not stagnant. It's not like whatever the results were last time, they're guaranteed to be this time. No. Do you want to win back people who uh, have less than, a, uh, less than a college education, less than a high school education? Do you want to win, win back people in you know, certain income brackets that you're not doing well in or you should do better in? For the love of God, here's another example of the people are telling you exactly what they want. In every way they polled, a majority of Americans support unions and support this current wave of strikes, and a majority support a union at their workplace, even people who make over $150,000 a year. I was surprised by that one. Usually the more people make, the less they say, like, yeah, I I want a union, because they feel like, yeah, I got my mind, I'm okay. No, majorities across the board support unions. I I really feel like there's been a light bulb moment in this country. And I think one of the reasons why is, People know Washington is not fighting for them. People know our politics are corrupt. People know nobody's coming to save you. You have to save yourself, and the best way to do that is to stand in solidarity with your fellow workers and fight back against exploitative management. You know, get a decent wage, get decent benefits, get paid time off. If the politicians aren't going to deliver, and clearly they're not, well, you can either negotiate one-on-one with your boss and hope they're nice, Not a great idea. Or you can stand in solidarity with your workers and collectively bargain. That's the answer. When unions were strongest in this country, um, the working class was the healthiest it's ever been. The golden age of economic expansion, we had high taxes on the wealthy, and we had strong unionization rates. And income and wealth inequality was much less than it is today. And um, I'm sure there, there were a lot of social ills that were not as impactful as they are today because... 
material well-being, economic well-being ameliorates a lot of those ills. It doesn't eliminate them, but it makes them better. Well, now we're clearly in another gilded age of sorts, especially with this pandemic ramping up wealth and income inequality. And people, it could go either way. Sometimes people drink the Kool-Aid and go down the wrong path of, let's be like Ayn Rand libertarians and go even more extreme in an anti-government direction. Bad idea. But the other thing that can happen and does happen and is happening in this instance is people are realizing, oh, it's actually the opposite. We need solidarity. We need populism. We need workers joining together and having each other's back because nobody else is going to have our backs. So here you go. Of course, the reason why the Democrats wouldn't necessarily get all on board with this is why. They do take some union money, Democrats do, but they take more corporate money. So they're always trying to find a way to like pander to the unions by saying some things every now and then, but largely serving the corporations who are at odds with what the union wants. So again, the problem always comes back to corruption, and that's where we are on this issue. But even just aesthetically, if you supported unions more, if you were more aggressive in your support of them, um, you'd get rewarded by voters. But of course, you'd be punished by your donors, which is why Democrats are hesitating to pull the trigger on that front. Got to get the money out of the system, but really, guys, everybody should be happy because clearly there's a sea change happening when it comes to unions and when it comes to labor. And people are understanding, hey, maybe this is one of the most direct, pertinent, and powerful answers to many of our problems. All right, final story of the day. Actually, you know what? I can't. Can't do it. I think I'm going to have to save this one, y'all. I think I'm going to have to save this one. Yeah. I got something I got to do today. It's a shame. All right. We'll save it for next time. The super rich are forming a new exclusive club, and I'm going to rip it to shreds. All right. I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Um, Got a great Crystal Crystal Kylan friends this week. We're actually recording a few, but one of them is going to be released on Thanksgiving Day. I'm going to talk to TJ Kirk. Um, that's the one that's going to be released this week. And um, I will talk to David Dole as well. That will be released on Thanksgiving. So a lot of great stuff upcoming. Um, keep tuning in, guys. Love you to death. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters, people who don't support on Patreon. Please consider helping the show out. We're really getting hammered uh, more recently by demonetization. Stuff we cover is controversial. And fuck the YouTube algorithm. Like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. Love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.